eternal life through what he did because he died on the cross and he rose three days later and we can have life in him. Father, we thank you for our church. We thank you for the opportunity just to come and to worship you. Father, we thank you that um, we have a reason to worship. We thank you for your son selflessly laying down his life for us. Pray, we thank you for this truth. We pray for Pastor Rodney as he comes up and opens your word. Just open our hearts to what you have to say to us through him. Praise pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. I, I so much appreciate our student band and how they're worshiping, how they're growing in their relationship with God and just knowing that God's at move in our, our student ministry, that they could come up and lead us in worship. We also are grateful for Luke Earwood. He's now our college director, but helps our, our student band in leading, so we appreciate him as well. Open your Bibles up to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Last week, we talked about the church's leadership, and if you look at the title of today's message, there's a two out beside it, because this is really a second message on the church's leadership. You're actually going to have one more because next week we pick up with deacons back in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I know that may have even sounded a little bit odd for me to say 1 Peter today. And what's that about? I I think uh, almost every sermon I've preached so far we've said open up the 1 Timothy. But today I want us to focus a little bit more on leadership and take another angle. 1 Timothy chapter 3, the first Seven verses talk about elders, overseers, pastors, and for the most part, it's describing the kind of person someone is, the character qualities. First Peter chapter 5 comes back to the heart of the matter and describes really what that function should look like, what that office should look like. Everybody provides leadership. Everybody is leading in some way or the other. Everybody's influencing other people. When I looked at this stage of graduates, I, I can think in terms of many of them are already leaders. They're already, well, all of them are already leaders. Many of them are already leading for the glory of God. They're already influencing others for Christ in their areas that God has called them to. Others uh, we'll be learning more and more about how to lead for the glory of God, how to have a positive influence, how to have a godly, a biblical influence. And as we think about leadership in the church, we cannot underestimate how important it is. Uh, I think about Alistair Begg in the book that he and Derek Prime wrote called On Being a Pastor. And notice what he said about leadership, especially when it comes to the church. The church of Jesus Christ does not progress beyond the spiritual progress of its leaders. I know that's putting a lot of weight on the shoulders of the leadership in the church, but that's exactly where God puts it. And as we've said before, no matter where you are, the the organization will not outgrow its leadership. God puts leaders in place, and there's a ceiling that is in place with the leadership. Now, leadership is not bad. Remember, leadership is a good thing. It's created by God. I I think because of the cynicism of the world today that we can automatically be suspect of leadership. And even in a sermon like today talking about 
the church's leadership. It can be said, well, that's, that's pretty self-serving. He's preaching about being pastor uh, of a church. And, and really the greater group of staff, the pastors of a church. But remember, leadership is God's idea. And organization and structure is God's idea. Dave Harvey, in a book called The Plurality Principle, one of the better ones on pastors and elders in a church, listen to what he said. Leadership is not a consequence of the fall, but rather God's good design for human flourishing in a well-ordered world. Because we're all sinners and live in the flesh in a fallen world, sometimes leadership goes awry. Leaders make mistakes. Many of you have been hurt by leaders. And because of that, if we're not careful, we want to throw out the whole idea of leadership and say, well, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. That's really not an option with God. Because with his church, he has put leadership in place. And it's a very good thing. And it's a thing that we have to learn. How do we deal with? In your own home, there's leadership. There has to be. If not, you're going to be scattered. You're not going to have direction. God has a plan in your home. God has a plan in the church. God has a plan for society in general with government. Leadership is not bad. God created it and means for us to live within leadership. So as we come back to 1 Peter, Peter is writing in a time that's very difficult. Maybe we can say this is a time like ours when we're really uncertain what is ahead of us. It doesn't seem like we're living in the best days of our nation. Sometimes even as church people, as followers of Christ, we wonder where is this going? How are we going to be impacted when we stand for our faith and we're trying to not only live out our values, but we're sharing our values in public arenas? 1 Peter chapter 1, notice the environment that Peter is writing this letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's, he's talking to exiles, people who have been forced out of their home areas because of the persecution. The church was under great stress, duress, persecution, difficulty, suffering, and because of that, people were scattered throughout the world. And Peter's writing to these groups of leaders in these different churches, these elect exiles, trying to help them figure it out and live faithfully in the places that they are. And that's where we find 1 Peter chapter 5. If you would, join me in standing, if you're able. And let's read the first five verses of 1 Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You may be seated. And let's pray again. Father, as we 
open up this text. We know it's your word. It's inspired by you, given by you. We know that it was given for the first century and the people who were living under Peter's leadership and the others' leadership that were in their different cities. And we know it was given for us today as we serve you here in Greensboro as a church family at Lawndale. We, we need you. We want you. We pray that as we look at this text that you'll speak to us. We pray that you would teach us, equip us for the work that we have here. We pray that you will rebuke us, correct us, train us in righteousness so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We are yours and we worship you and we worship you by putting ourselves at your mercy and under the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to give you at least four points this morning. If you're following along with me in your outline and you have that in your bulletin, you'll notice those blank lines will be real easy to fall in, fill in. But I want you to see first of all with me this morning that if we're going to do God's work, we're going to have to lead with the right view of ownership. In chapter 5 of 1 Peter in verse 2, we get these specific instructions for the leaders of these different churches. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Now, we would never want to think about having the wrong kind of leaders in place. And we're given clear admonitions, not only from 1 Timothy 3, what kind of character someone should have, but the kind of life that they should be living, how they carry out their leadership. What kind of man would it be that should be an elder slash pastor slash overseer within a church? And the right kind of elder is one who would understand ownership. Who is it that owns the church? Who is it that's in charge of the church? And Peter is saying that in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. He understood that it wasn't his, it wasn't theirs, it's the flock of God. Now, as far as owning this, the assignment comes from the owner. That's your, that's your sub-point there. Uh, not only should we lead with the right view of ownership, but understand the owner has given us the assignment, and that's the subject of verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. To shepherd means to protect. The shepherd out with all the sheep, he would look out for wolves. He would look out for predators. He would try to keep the flock gathered and, and headed in the same direction. He would know them well. He was the kind of shepherd that called names and had relationships with those sheep. And he's saying, shepherd the flock of God. Take care of them. Feed them. And how do we feed the, the sheep of God, the flock of God, with the word of God? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. A shepherd would bring the word of God to the people of God, so that when the people of God met and worshipped God, they would hear a word from God. He would shepherd them and, and feed them and gather them together so that they could come together and be ready to move forward in the right direction. But notice as well from here, not only do we see the assignment from the owner, but we see the assets of the owner. Shepherd the flock of God. The flock. That's what God's concerned about with the people. Sometimes we get all caught up in a lot of stuff that's really not as important to God. A lot of means 
to shepherd the flock maybe, good things in and of themselves, but can get in the way. Sometimes we get caught up in programs. And we've got to do this program, this program, and God's not so much concerned about our programs unless they help people. Is this what God wants? Can we make disciples through these programs? Sometimes we get caught up in things that we've always done. You've heard them, the seven last words of the church, and I'm not sure I'll get all seven out there, but what are they? We've never done it that way before. Sometimes we get caught up in in programs. Sometimes we get caught up in the past, our traditions. Sometimes we get caught up in buildings and facilities. and, And again, we're grateful for ways that God works through some of these things. But ultimately, we're about people. Jesus didn't die for a building. Jesus didn't die for a program. Jesus died for people. And he told the leaders, shepherd the flock. Shepherd the people. The people are who the church should be about. How are we taking care of, protecting, feeding the people that God's brought within the flock? But then you also see the affection of the owner. It's shepherd the flock of God. The flock is his. He cares about his people. Think about it as a parent. Many of you are moms and dads, maybe even grandparents. You take care of your kids. You're going to make sure they have what they need. You're going to make sure that they're corrected when they need corrected. They're they're given instruction. They're given food. You love your kids and you take care of them. That in no way even compares to the way God loves his kids. It does compare. We get the point of that. But you, you understand God's love is so much greater than our own human love is able to even communicate because God always knows best and he always does what's best and he cares for his people. He loves his people. The affection of the owner, we're, we're in a church family. We're not just trying to take care of ourselves. We're taking care of what's important to God. That makes all the difference in the world because he cares so deeply for his own people. Now, that doesn't mean his people are always easy to take care of. Even in your own house, your kids weren't always easy to take care of. And and bring it up to speed, some of you are walking through that stage even right now. Your kids aren't always easy to take care of. Sometimes they don't want to do what you're directing them to do. I've heard from real shepherds that actually take care of those fuzzy animals. I hear that sometimes those sheep are prone to wonder. They don't always want to be in the flock. They don't always want to follow the voice of the shepherd. As a matter of fact, sometimes when the shepherd really gets on them, I understand they will even bite the shepherd's feet. Now, please don't bite my feet feet or any of our pastors. Obviously, we're not taking that literally, but we're, we're saying that it's not always easy to shepherd a flock. And sometimes there's some patience and sometimes there's, there's conflict that happens and, and we're shepherding people as they're trying to move along together. Now you think about even in a room this size and, and the hundreds of people who are gathered here this morning and all the different ideas and all the different directions, all the ways that people were raised and all the ways that people have experienced church in their past. And to think we're all trying to get headed in the same direction, that's not easy. Only God can do such a thing as that. 
And God is saying, even in the difficult times, because oftentimes it's the difficult times that really bring out our true colors, aren't, isn't it? Because when we get under pressure and we're being asked to do something that makes us uncomfortable or something is a little bit painful, that's when we start really seeing, oh, okay, now we see what kind of pastor we called here to Lawndale. He gets a little pressure and it, it does. It, it pushes us a little bit in that kind of way. And so we see, though, that the only way we're going to be able to lead is to have the right view of ownership. This is, this is God's flock. But secondly... We're going to have to lead with the right view of relationship. When you, again, look in 1 Peter 5, this time back up to verse 1, he said, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Peter was one of the original elders slash pastors and overseers. He knew what it was like to lead a group of people. He was a leader in the church at Jerusalem. And although we don't have apostles today, the apostles were more or less the forerunners of what elders would be like in the church. And even at this point, as the churches were being organized and started all over these different cities, Peter understood that it was the elders who had been shaped really from that office of apostleship. It's, it's really rooted back into Acts chapter 6. If you go back and you read that chapter, the church was struggling. They were going through some difficult times. And there were a lot of needs that weren't being met by the widows. And so what did they do? They said, well, let's choose seven men from among our body, our family. And let's appoint them that they will take care of these widows. In that text, they're not actually called deacons, but they become the forerunners of deacons. And then he said, because we can't... We can't neglect the ministry of the word and prayer. And so those apostles were sticking to the ministry of the word and prayer. The deacons were formed so that they could take care of many of the needs that were taking place in the body. And that became a more formal structure by the time we read 1 Timothy that we've been studying. Where now you have two offices. The offices of elder, overseer, pastor, and the office of deacons. And, of course, Peter's writing to that group of leaders that are spread in these different churches in these different cities. And he's not only writing as a forerunner and a fellow elder, but he's even talking about the elders that are among them. So they have a relationship with the past as a part of the way God designed the church. But even in their own midst, they had a group of leaders that had to figure out how to work together. I want to let you know, in case you don't know or you're new to Lawndale, we have a great group of men who serve as pastors. I'm thankful that I get to work alongside of them as an equal among that. Now, I, I know that I have a little bit more responsibility to be a leader among those equals, but it's a group of equals who, who you have a group of pastors who love the Lord and who are seeking to serve Him and to lead the church. And we talk through things and we pray together. And we come to a text like this so that we can better understand how God means for us to lead. Some of you, maybe you've never really been a part of a church family, and you wonder, how do they operate? How do they lead? That guy that gets up there and speaks, is he just telling everybody what to do? And I would say, no, that's, that wouldn't be healthy for you, for me just to, from my own perspective, be telling you what to do. It wouldn't be healthy for my family, for me just to tell my family what all they're supposed to do. God's given me a helpmate, and we talk, and we pray, and we're equals, and we make decisions together. 
And sometimes there's something that we may disagree on in a moment. And as we pray more, we, we try to delay a decision. But then ultimately, if we don't get on the same page, and usually we do, God has made me responsible to say, okay, Rodney, you better make the right decision because you're the one who's, in, who's going to have responsibility for that. And, and the same with a group of pastors, a group of elders. And I would say to you, as we're looking at Lawndale, that's how we're operating. We have a group of pastors, a group of elders who are conferring together and working together to try to lead the church in the right direction. So there's a relationship there. I, I guess I'm trying to emphasize we don't have a celebrity pastor. Now, I don't think I already have to tell you that. You already know that. But that's not healthy to have one person who's calling all the shots and telling everybody what to do. There, that's why every time you see elders, it's talked about in the plural in the scriptures. It's, it's a plurality of leadership that we're after here. Uh, if you're a part of the Lawndale family, I, I want you to know that you have a group of men who are praying together. I, I hope that that group will continue to expand and that we'll talk even more about what that will look like at some point. But for now, I want you to know there's... There's not one person who's calling all the shots. We're, we're praying together. We're working together. And, and I want you to be praying for the leaders. I think leadership can be very suspect today, as I said, because there have been a lot of failures and there have been a lot of problems. And we do live in a fallen world. And so what is, what is the right view of leadership, though? Uh, not only should we lead with the right view of ownership and relationship, but we should lead with the right view of leadership. Look again in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. I, I love that picture too of the shepherd is with the sheep. Did you pick that up in that statement? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. A shepherd that separates himself out from the flock is not a very good shepherd. It's a, it's a shepherd who is among the sheep. He, he smells like them. So make sure you take a bath when you come to church. <laughs> Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. That's, that's the responsibility of the leadership. Now, we're given three ways that you can identify what a godly shepherd should look like. He's telling them to shepherd the flock of God, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Sometimes we... Because it gets a little bit tough, we begin to do what we have to do, and it almost becomes more just going through the motions. But when, we're, when we keep the right perspective of the ownership and that it's a privilege to do the work of God together, there should be a joyful response to being able to lead the flock of God. This is God's work. And God has blessed us with the privilege. It's not something that we have to do. It's something that we get to do. We get to lead at Lawndale. So, just being here now for a few months, some of you, I, I, I still am meeting weekly people who are saying, this is our first time back in like 15 months. And welcome. We're glad you're here. We're glad more and more people are coming back and things are opening up. But sometimes people will say to Donna and myself, you know, we're, we're glad you're here. Thank you for coming. And we, we respond, 
man, thank you for letting us come. Thank you for letting us be here. We, we feel blessed to, to serve among the people of God. It's not, a, it's not a got to, we have to. It's, God, you've blessed us with the opportunity to do your work and to serve you. And as a group of pastors, as our staff, thank you for the privilege of, of, of being staff here. There are a lot of places that if God were to call me, I would think, God, surely you're not calling me there. Here, when being as, as a pastor here among you, I think, thank God for Lawndale. Thank you for a group of people that love him and that love their pastors and pray for their pastors and know that they're a group of men and they're not perfect, but they love their pastors. Thank you for being that kind of group. He, he told them, don't, don't lead under compulsion, but willingly. I, I take that even as, as a joyful response to God. When sometimes young men who will come to me and say, I, I believe that God may be calling me into vocational ministry. It's that aspiring to the office of overseer that God begins to call someone and it's not always easy and some days are more difficult than others but there's that joyful response because you know you're doing the work of God and the church they began to say some of those kinds of things early on in the first century the church at Ephesus remember we we said from first Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 Paul would say, the saying is trustworthy. That thing you've been hearing circulating around the church, that little bit of a statement, it's, it's trustworthy. And so help me out, church family, you know this. The saying is trustworthy. Okay, I was starting to wonder, that, that can't be on the board. Let's try that again. The saying is trustworthy. Excellent. This, this, is, this is what God's calling even some of you maybe to, to serve in as a role as an elder, whether it's vocationally or a volunteer. And it's, it's a noble task. That's what Peter's getting at here. You, you shouldn't be serving under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Now, there was another thing that was circulating, and I, I feel like we need to make sure we're staying in tune with First Timothy and I love what one dad told me. He said they were having family devotions with their First Timothy family devotions. And he said the saying is trustworthy. And all the kids just began to say what we've been saying over and over again in our service. That's what we want to see happen. That's a really neat testimony. But go back. Now, this one's not, not going to be on the board this time. I'm really testing you guys. First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, though. Paul said, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Let's try that again. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus. You know, are we blessed by that as a church family? None of us deserve to be in his family. None of us deserve to be adopted into his family and be a part of a local church like Lawndale. God, though, sent his son, God the Father sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, to be raised from the dead, not only paying the price for our sins, but showing he has power over sin. 
And those who place their faith in Jesus can become a part of the family of God. And those who are in the family of God become a part of the church of God. God begins to work in their lives and they want to be around other believers so they can grow in their faith and so they can worship God together collectively and be obedient when he tells them to gather together. Now, let's look at another idea of the right view of leadership. It's not under compulsion, but it's willingly. It's also not for shameful gain, verse 2, but eagerly. We're motivated and are eager about it because we're making eternal investments. We're investing in the souls of people. You can do that whatever job you do. Some of you invest in eternal souls out in your job, in your workplace, because one, you're setting a godly example of what a, a, a Christian looks like in the workplace, in the world. Some of you are doing this at home. You're, you're not living out your role at home for what you get out of it. You're doing it eagerly because you know it's eternal work. You're making disciples at home. And, and many of you are doing that in our, our church family. You're serving. Uh, you're serving in our, our children's area, our special needs area. You're a greeter. You're a deacon. You're a teacher. You do all kinds of things, and we do it not for what we get out of it, but we do it eagerly because we know we're doing it for an eternal reason. We're doing it for the glory of God. I, I like to say to our pastors, I hope you're doing what you would do even if you weren't paid for it. Now, don't get any ideas. <laughs> Thank you for supporting us and allowing us to do what we do full time. And Lawndale has been a very generous, gracious church to its staff. Thank you for your giving, your generosity. We, we are blessed at Lawndale. And at the same time, what, what if you're called as a pastor, I think... Whether you do it within a church body, vocationally, you can't help but to do these kinds of things, to be in the Word and to teach the Word and to share and make disciples. And I, I think that's what this is about. Even if nobody came up after a sermon or after an event that happened at the church led by one of our pastors and never said, hey, that was a good job today. Even if nobody, it would, it would be okay. Uh, it might hurt our feelings every once in a while. It's really nice. You guys are way too kind uh, when in your encouragement. But we're not doing it for what we get out of it, whether it's gain or whether it's acclaim or approval, but eagerly because it's eternal. And then he said, not domineering, but being examples. Our, our biggest influence is not intimidation. Well, if you don't do this and threats and... You know, who would want to be in a home with a man who is leading his home by intimidation? Who would want to be on a job with a man who leads his work environment by intimidation? And who would want to be in a church family where it's being led by intimidation? Well, if you don't do this, then and fill in the blank. Leadership should be servanthood, not intimidation. What a terrible motivator. I hope that as you look at these, you can apply these things to your home. Isn't that a great description of a head of a household? He's not doing it under compulsion like he has to, but he's doing it willingly. 
Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be great a man's leading his home not for, for what he gets out of it, shameful game or what, gain or whatever, but eagerly. Not because he's domineering and making everybody do what they don't want to do, but he's leading by being an example to everybody else in his household. I, I think most wives would love to have a husband like this and would gladly follow him. I think most churches would, would love to have pastors like this and would gladly follow them in that. This, this is the example that God's given us. And rather than leading by intimidation, we lead by servanthood. That's the example that Jesus gave. That's, that's what he taught us. As a matter of fact, that's not, not only what he taught us and modeled, but one day Jesus is going to come back. And he's the one that we're going to have to give an account for, for the kind of leadership that we give. Look in verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You see, that's our final point, the fourth point. Lead with the right view of lordship. The chief shepherd. There's nobody greater than him. He's the one that we're all giving an account to, whether we're a pastor, whether we're a church member, whether we're an elder, whether we're a deacon, whether whoever we are, whether we've been here a long time, whether we've been here a short time, we're all going to give an account to the chief shepherd. That's who, what God thinks is the most important out of all of it. He's the chief shepherd. And one day he's going to appear. He's going to come back. This chief shepherd who has put groups of shepherds to lead and as responsible for different flocks all over the world, that chief shepherd's going to come back one day he is going to appear, and he's going to judge our work. Sometimes you may look and think someone is making a decision that you don't like or particularly care for. Remember, he's going to give an account to God for that. One day, Jesus is going to come back, and there's no question asked. He's going to come back. No excuses will be made. And when he appears, you will receive. Now, not everybody has the same amount of talents and gifts, right? I, I look at someone like a Billy Graham. I mean, I, we could go on with all kind of people, a Jonathan Edwards from the past. I mean, we look at some of these giants of the faith who, who have reached millions and written just prolifically and you... They're going to be held accountable for a lot because they've been given a lot of talents and abilities and resources. Some of us have fewer talents. But we're all going to be held accountable for what talents and gifts we've been given. If you are a follower of Christ, if you've given your life to Christ, you're going to be held accountable for the talents and the gifts that you've been given. If you are sitting on your hands and you're not using your gifts and abilities and talents the Lord has given you, You'll be held accountable. As a matter of fact, I will say, I will say, I think you'll be embarrassed when you stand before the Lord one day. Now, if you're using your gifts, they may not be great. You may only have a couple. I think you'll be confident before the Lord one day. None of us deserve to stand before him, but because of what Jesus did for us on the cross and the resurrection, he's made us able one day to stand before him as a child of God, knowing we're going to be with God forever. But when he appears, when he comes back, we're all going to receive judgment. What is that going to look like? I, I think if we took 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
into account would see some, when they stand before him, their works are going to be judged. These are followers of Christ. Those who don't know Christ, they're going to spend eternity in the place we call hell. Those who know Christ, they're going to be judged and, and they're going to give an account for what they've done with what they've been given. Not for their sin because Jesus already paid for that. But they are going to be held accountable for their stewardship. What have they done with what they've been given? Some, because they've not used what they've been given, their work is going to be tried by fire. It's going to be like wood and hay and stubble. It's all going to be burned up. And I think those folks are going to be embarrassed because they're not going to have a worthy offering of the king. But those who've used their talents that God's given them and lived a life of obedience to him... When their work is tried by fire, when it's judged, it'll be like the gold and the silver and the precious stones that stands. And that, to me, is the crown of life. That's the crown. And what do we do with crowns when we receive them? Revelation 4 and 5 tells us that those who are gathered around the throne, and I believe that's the believers who've been raptured up, who've been taken to be with the Lord, and we're all around the throne room of God. Well, those who are there, they take their crowns, and they cast them before the throne of God at the glassy sea that's around the throne of God. Again, what are you going to present to the Lord? What kind of treasure have you laid up in heaven? Not because you're going to wear a crown and say, hey, look at me. That, the crown will point to Jesus. You've lived a life that's worthy of the king. You're just giving an offering back to him when you stand before him. You've lived a life that he's called you to. I would say to you, the chief shepherd's going to appear. If you're in the family of God, you're going to give an account. Those who are elders and pastors, they're going to have a special reckoning as well. They've been given a special responsibility to lead out in the church. And God will hold them accountable for that. Lead with the right view of lordship. Who are we going to give an account to? He says in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And so not only are the pastors going to give an account, but everybody in the church family are going to give an account. Likewise, you're going to give an account, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, follow. Following's not easy, but the Bible makes following a very good thing. Wives, I know it's not always easy to follow your husband. And if he ever asks you to do something that's outside the will of God or outside uh, what is right in Scripture, don't follow him. It's better to obey God rather than man. But even in a church family, sometimes it's not easy to lead your past, follow your pastors. Certainly not easy to lead your pastors. A little faux pas there. But it's not always easy to follow uh, your pastors. And if they ever ask you to do something outside the, the biblical revelation, don't follow them. But he's saying, we'll give an account. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And what is it going to take for us to serve together? Well, clothe yourselves, all of you. Pastors and elders and deacons and church members, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you want to be running with God or against God? Put on humility. Follow God. Follow, allow Him to lead you. Allow Him to lead you according to His design. Now, what does it take for a church to be united? I think this is it. We all have got to clothe ourselves with humility here. In some ways, a text like this is a little bit difficult because it seems a little self-serving. Hey, guys, follow me. 
I really don't want to say that. When my kids were little, I didn't really want to say, hey, follow me. I wanted to say, hey, don't do what I do, do what I say. But there was a point when God said, Rodney, you've got to embrace that because they're going to be a lot like you whether you want them to be or not. They're going to follow, they're going to follow you whether you want them to or not. So you better embrace that role I've given you as a parent and say, follow me as I follow Christ. And so as a pastor, sometimes it seems a little bit odd and difficult and uneasy and uncomfortable for me to say, guys, follow me and follow our staff. But I'm, I'm just teaching according to Scripture here. Clothe yourselves, all of you, whether you're a pastor, whether whatever you're serving as a, as a member in the church with humility toward one another. Run with God. I, I even think about the intergenerational ministry that we're trying to a, accomplish here at Lawndale. I, I think, man, doesn't the world need to see the older and the younger? Doesn't the world need to see us worshiping together and serving together and blessing one another? What would it do in our world today to see a church like that? And I know what it's going to require. I know it's going to require the older sacrificing for the younger. That's part of it. As a parent, there were times you sacrificed for your kids. They may have never known it. But you sacrifice because you love them enough to sacrifice. And there are older people in our church at Lawndale. They've been sacrificing for years. And, and some have, uh, are even working now through some things. Am I willing to sacrifice for the kingdom of God and for the unity of, of the church? It just always requires that. Why? Because they're older. They're more mature. They're, they're able to absorb more because they've seen more. They're more mature. The older sacrifice for the younger. And the younger learn from the older. Older. The younger have to be humble enough to say, you know what, they're my, they're, they're my elders in an, in an age sense. They've experienced more. They have a lot to teach. And I've got to come alongside of them and learn from what they've done well and maybe what they've not done so well, but to listen and to learn from them. If, if a church is not willing to do that, it will never be united. This is the work of God. And God wants us to be one. And even as a, a group of pastors that are leading the church and the church members together, that we might be one. Listen to what Hebrews 13 says about being subject to the elders. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then a little further in that same chapter, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. As a group of pastors at Lawndale, I want to say how thankful we are to serve alongside of you. I, I want to say as well that we're committed to following the Lord and with His help, trying to set an, an example that you can follow. And we're saying in this whole series of Revive the Church, we're saying to God as a group of pastors, revive the church and start with us. We need the work of God as much as anybody in our lives. And we're praying for direction and help and There'll be things that we'll be bringing to you as a church family from our, from our staff and from our, our, our pastors. And we're going to be wanting you to come alongside of us. And 
We want you to know we're praying and we're seeking God and we're asking him and we're saying, God, revive the church and start with us. And one of the most encouraging things we talk about in our staff meetings sometimes is, you know, we, we have a church that also wants revival. We sense a group and a movement of people who are coming together to say, we, we want to wrestle with the scriptures. We want to understand what is God really saying about these areas in our lives. And we want revival. And what a wonderful combination of a group of pastors who want revival and a church who wants revival. And it's, and it's the kind of unity that God wants us to come together and be one together as a church body. We can't do it ourselves. We know it's only with the help of God. But what would, it, what would it say to Greensboro for a church to be one and united? I know what it says to Greensboro when I hear churches all around us that are going through all kinds of different things. What does it say to, what does it say to the world? Wouldn't they say, what's going on down there? You've got older people, you've got younger people who are loving each other, worshiping together. You've got people with all kinds of ethnicities. You've got black, you've got white, you've got people from this country and that country. Can you imagine what that would do in Greensboro when they say, you know, you just treat people like they're in the image of God. You, You create people like they're loved by God. You create people like we're all equal together and we love each other. Don't you think that would be a powerful message to Greensboro and the world? How will they know that we're following Christ? How will they really know that we're following Christ? They'll know by your love for one another. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for this body of believers. What a blessing. Over the years as you've continued doing your work that We're able now to keep building on that solid foundation of Christ. And we pray that you'll keep working among our pastors. We need you, Lord. None of us, none of us is worthy to lead your church on our own. But we come because Jesus has changed our lives. And because you have put it in our hearts to shepherd your people. And you've commanded us to do that. And I pray that we as a church family that would be all together one. We would be on the same page. And in our moments when we're not uh, agreeing, in those moments when we're trying to figure out how to move forward, God, give us grace. Give us help. We thank you for a time like this that we're one. We thank you for a time like this when there's excitement. We thank you for a time like this when we see you moving in ways that, that only you could move. And as we move ahead... We pray for more of that. May your love just be multiplied many times over. May this place be a light to the world that people would be asking what's going on there and that we would say only because of Jesus, only because of what he's done through the cross and the resurrection, he's called us into this family and we're treating each other like moms and dads and brothers and sisters and they'll know us by our love for you and our love for each other. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.